Oh, Lord Jesus, we need your help in order to hear your words the way we should. Our hearts are weak. Our flesh is frail. It's so easy for us to be carried off by other thoughts, be thinking about what we'll do after church or what waits us in the office on Monday or that conversation we wish had gone differently on Friday. Will you help us now to pay close attention to your word? Would you speak to us through your word? And would you change us? Make, those into, make us into people who love your perfect timing for our lives. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. Timing is everything. Surely you have heard the phrase. There's no better illustration than the Spanish Armada in the 1580s. King Philip II decided that England had gone too far down this fancy Protestant road and decided to bring them back into the fold of Rome. The way he was going to do that was through a giant army of ships, 130 ships to be exact, no less than 2,500 guns, 8,000 sailors, and 20,000 soldiers to serve as an invasion force. It was an overwhelming show of force with only one problem. The timing got thrown off. Through some logistical problems and some sabotage, kind of a raid that slowed them down, but mostly through some just untimely summer storms, this armada was slow in getting to England, and that delay proved to be the, all the difference that was needed. The British Navy was ready. They soundly defeated the Spanish Armada, which lost over a third of their ships and limped back to Spain. Surely you know in your life how important timing is. Maybe it was buying that stock at just the wrong time. And you still remember it to this day. Or maybe it was on the other end. Maybe it was being introduced to someone at just the right time that turned out to be your spouse you're very thankful for. We understand the importance of timing. Which leads to a, a rather normal assumption that all Christians must have. If Jesus is perfect in all things, then surely Jesus must have the best timing of all. Surely he must do everything at just the right time to accomplish just the right goals that he has. But what does that actually work out like? What does it actually look like? Well, the passage in front of us, John chapter 7, we will see Jesus' perfect timing because he is on his Father's perfect heavenly agenda. And while it's very different from how we think of time and how we think of what someone should be after in this world, we'll see that we should be thankful for the perfect timing of our Savior. We'll, we'll see this in three scenes as Jesus goes to his coming out party. Three scenes from Jesus at the Feast of Booths. The first scene will be in verses 1 through 5. We'll see Jesus encounter a sneering suggestion. Then in verses 6 through 10, the second scene, Jesus will give us a sovereign lesson. A sovereign lesson. And then finally in verses 11 through 13, we'll see a simmering controversy about who is this man, Jesus. Let's begin in verses 1 through 5, a sneering suggestion. 
Chapter 7 comes right on the heels of the bread of life discourse where we spent most of our time over the last several months. Jesus had been teaching in Capernaum to a, a group of people that had been attracted to him initially, but over time became more and more offended by what it is he said about himself. There's been some time that's passed from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7. This is actually a new unit that's starting in John. Chapter 7 and 8 deal with Jesus going to this party, to the Feast of Booths. But more importantly, the end of chapter 6 shows us Jesus' last acts in the place called Galilee. The bulk of Jesus' ministry happened outside of Judea and Jerusalem. It was in the outlying areas, away from the religious leaders. And in John's gospel, though, his time in that area, and that ministry, is truncated. And John spends most of his time focusing on what you might call the beginning of the end. Jesus' ministry in Judea and ultimately in Jerusalem. Now, chapter 7 starts us with that transition period as Jesus, for the last time, is going to leave Galilee. And we know the significance of a last time in a place, don't you? Maybe it was your last time on a college campus before it was time to part ways with all your friends and you just felt the gravity of that moment. Maybe it was a last time driving away from a loved one's house. You just had the feeling that your time with them on this earth has come to an end. A last time driving away from your hometown you grew up in. There's something significant about these transition moments. And John, in his artistry, puts before us an incredible picture here of how Jesus thinks of his purpose and timing in this transition moment. Verses 1 and 2 set the stage for what this transition is going to be like. So Jesus is still in Galilee at this point. And we're told he won't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. If you remember back to chapter 5, the last time Jesus was in Judea, he had gone at the, around Passover to Jerusalem, and he had dared to heal a man on the Sabbath. That resulted in a conflict between him and the religious leaders, and apparently the religious leaders had not gotten over that grudge. They were just biding their time waiting for Jesus to show up so they could finally tie off this loose end. Jesus has been avoiding Judea up until this time. We're also told in verse 2, that the Jews' Feast of the Booths was at hand. Now, the Feast of the Booths is a really important piece of historical context for us to understand. Back in the ancient world, uh, if you were a faithful Jew, if you lived within about 20 miles of Jerusalem, you would go back for these important festivals that would go on throughout the calendar year. You, you probably have heard about Passover. That's one of the most important ones. In Jesus' day, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was undoubtedly the most popular of all the festivals. And there were a variety of reasons for that. Uh, one, it was laid out in Scripture that they were supposed to do this. If you have time this afternoon, you can look in Leviticus 23. You'll see that God himself tells them to, uh, to commemorate this time with this festival. Well, the reason why is because it reminded them of what God had done during that time when his people were wandering in the wilderness. The booths or the tabernacles were reminding them of the fact that they lived under the open air. You can think of them like little shacks that they would live in for that week that they would be able to see the stars through because the roof would not cover the whole thing. It was to remind them that they had depended on God during this time and that God had provided again and again. 
It was still popular because it was the last of the festivals. It's kind of like how we would think of Christmas today. You know, it's the, the last big celebration with religious overtones in the, in the calendar. It, it happened around September, October, in October, uh, September to October, sometime in the fall. And one of the reasons it was really popular is it was a harvest festival. That was when they were gathering all the grapes. And so that meant there was lots of food and, yes, lots of drink. So people really, really loved the Feast of the Booths. And not only that, it was a time of national pride. As they remembered back to that special time in the wilderness with God, people felt proud of being Israelites. And woven into it was some pretty compelling drama. I already mentioned the booths that they would live in. Uh, they were commanded to, to build these year after year, either on top of their house or in their backyard. But they also had uh, grand ceremonies, a, a pouring out of water that represented God uh, providing water from the rock in the wilderness, as well as lighting of torches, a, a great flame that went up to uh, remind them that God is their light. All of this added together made the Feast of Booths a place that you did not want to miss out being, uh, being. It was the who's who of the religious world when it came around. Well, that's all background for an encounter between Jesus and his brothers. In verses 3 through 5, Jesus' brothers show that they have a little bit of a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. They're both misguided and simultaneously antagonistic to Jesus. Look in verses 3 through 5. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see your, the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Well, the brothers tell Jesus a, a rather simple piece of advice. They say, Jesus... The who's who of religious festivals is happening right now. You should be there. Why don't you go to the feast? Then they give a reason why you should do this. That's the, in verse 4, this kind of truth or maxim. Nobody who wants to be known does things in private. They do things where people can see them. Now, on the surface, this may sound like good advice or, or maybe at the very least as good-hearted advice. They're saying, Jesus, you're saying that you are someone sent by God, you're God's Messiah? Well, aren't Messiahs supposed to have a following? Jesus, we looked around, we don't see a following at this point. Maybe you should go somewhere where there's people around and do some of those fancy miracles of yours, and maybe then you'll get a following again. Remember at the end of chapter 6, all of this, virtually all of Jesus' disciples had abandoned him. Now, you can hear the ill intent coming out of his brothers in this moment. They are goading Jesus over the fact that if he's in fact the Messiah, he doesn't look like one based on how many followers he has. Kids, if you have a brother or a sister, I'm just going to guess you are probably an expert at knowing just the right way to get under their skin, right? Siblings are good at this. You know, just the thing you can tease them about or just the thing you can remind them about that makes them just get really upset. And siblings just seem to love doing that. By the way, don't do that. It's not good. Don't, don't, don't antagonize your siblings. But as Jesus' brother, surely they would have grown up with him. They would have seen him do miracles. They would have seen him grow. 
And yet for all that they had seen of Jesus and all they know of him, they do not believe him. That's what we're told is really underlying all of this in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. You see, no matter how well-intentioned it may have been, and I don't think it was very well-intentioned, at the end of his day, his brothers, those so close to Jesus, they really didn't believe that he was who he claimed to be. Surely they had seen him do miracles. Surely they had heard his teaching. Surely they had seen his way of life growing and stature before God and man. And yet these men that were so close to Jesus, they miss him entirely. It won't be until after Jesus rises from the dead and personally shows himself to at least one of his brothers that any of them will believe in him. Friends, this shows us something that is vitally important for all Christians to understand. There's no family plan for getting into the kingdom of God. You cannot be born into being born again. Each and every one of us must believe in Jesus for ourselves. Kids, if you're here this morning, it's because you are a part of a family that values going to church, and I'm going to assume that your parents are Christians. That's a good thing. But please don't assume just because your parents are Christians, that means that you are one also. Jesus tells us we have to believe in him ourselves. It's possible to be close to Jesus, even to be in Jesus' immediate earthly family, and yet not to be a follower of Jesus. In Lebanon, I got a chance to know uh, a number of believers there while, uh, while I was there on a mission trip a few months back. And one of the things the believers there deal with is the fact that about a third of the country would identify as a Christian. So if you walk on the streets of Lebanon, you find a random person and you ask them, are you a Christian? About a third of the time you'll get the answer, yes. But the problem is the more, most often, the vast majority of the time, that person says, yes, they are a Christian because they were born into a family that has Christian heritage. They mean that they have ancestors that were Christians, that they celebrate Christian holidays, that they don't identify with Islam, they identify with the Christian religion in a broad sense. But that does not mean that we would call them someone who is born again. The believers there told us, if you want to find that out, you have to ask another question. You have to ask them, are you a believer? A much smaller percentage will say yes to that question. It's something like 1% or 2% of the population. <clears throat> now that distinction certainly holds as true in Indianapolis, even if we use different words as they do in Lebanon. Merely being familiar with church, being present in it, merely being around Christians, merely having family members that are Christians, it doesn't guarantee that you really know Jesus. You could be so close to him and yet totally miss him. That's the tragedy of this first section, the first scene, a sneering suggestion. But that leads to an important question. How is Jesus going to respond to this goading? And that's what we see in our second scene, verses 6 through 10, a sovereign lesson, a sovereign lesson. Jesus is going to teach his brothers something and in doing so, reveal the gulf that there is between them. Jesus does so by showing 
the difference in their agenda and their allegiance. Look with me in verses 6 through 8. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. You notice how verse 6 and verse 8, Jesus says virtually the same thing. My time has not yet come, but your time is already here. You go to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. Same basic idea. Jesus bookends what he says with this difference in agenda between himself and his brothers. He reveals the difference comes down to what we would call providence. Providence is defined by uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem as one of those theologically freighted words. This is uh, how Dr. Grudem describes it in his systematic theology. He says, providence is that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, and he gives three different ways God's involved. He keeps them existing and maintaining the properties which he created them. In other words, the world keeps spinning, the stars keep shining. Two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. In other words, he accomplishes things through storms. He uses the systems he's created to bring things about very often. And and then third, the most important one for us today, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. God's continually involved in his creation, directing them to fulfill his purposes. That's what we call providence. Sometimes we describe it as the hand of providence, how God is involved in our world to accomplish his will. Jesus reveals there is a gulf between his brothers and himself because Jesus is on God's timing and agenda. He is accomplishing God's providence, and yet his brothers, their their lives and their decisions are ultimately inconsequential compared to Jesus's. He says, my time, verse 6, my time is not yet come, but your time is already here. This isn't the first time in John's gospel Jesus has used the category of time to talk about providence. Maybe you remember back in chapter 2 when Jesus is, uh, right before he turned the water to wine, Jesus is talking to Mary and he tells her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Similar idea here. Jesus is asking why someone's trying to get him to do something. It's even a family member. And he says it's not yet the appropriate time. Now, John uses a different word there and a few other spots in his gospel than he does here. And when he does that, he does it intentionally. Whenever he uses the word hour, Jesus is referring to his hour, he's, <clears throat> he's undoubtedly referring to the cross. Jesus has a special appointment to keep, an appointment to die for the sins of the world. And yet, there's other times where Jesus reveals that he is on a heavenly agenda. That his time is not yet here means that Jesus is its not yet the right timing for him to do a particular thing. In this case, it's not yet time 
for him to go to the feast. The time is not yet right. <coughs> Excuse me for a second. <coughs> this reveals that Jesus is on a heavenly timing and a heavenly agenda. He is carrying out faithfully that which his father has put before him to do exactly at the time he's told to do it. I had a fun experience as I was hired on at College Park. Uh, I was simultaneously getting to know a congregation of at that time around 200 and a congregation of 4,000 at the same time. And uh, that put me in a little bit between two worlds and not knowing really where do I spend my time? Should I be here? Should I be at North India in the offices over there? Um, and so it was very helpful that someone, before I arrived, got a hold of my calendar and they laid out an agenda for me for the first few months. At this time, you go to this room. I'm like, okay, well, where's that room? I better figure out where that is. And uh, at this time, you meet with this person. And, and that was an act of love. It actually showed me how I could best use my time so that I could get to know both congregations. <clears throat> Jesus here is revealing he is on a, a heavenly agenda of sorts. The Father has laid out the works that Jesus is supposed to do. And Jesus will not deviate even for a second from his Father's perfect timing and agenda. Now, that before I move on, I just need to note that... <clears throat> Jesus seems here to change his mind about whether he's going to go to the feast. If you, if you jumped ahead to verse 11, you might already be, uh, uh, verse 10 rather, you might be already asking, but well, did Jesus just not know what was going to happen here? It says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Uh, I, I don't think we're supposed to understand here that Jesus misunderstood his agenda and then decided to go later after he told his brothers one thing. It's much easier to understand. Jesus is just telling his brothers, I'm not going on your timing because I'm not working on your agenda. I'm following the Father's timing and the Father's agenda. Jesus is just saying, I'm not going to go to the feast yet, not that he's not going to go at all. <clears throat> well, that leads us to the second difference, this gulf between Jesus and his brothers. It's that of allegiance. You can see that there in verse 7. He says, the world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus tells his brothers, it's inconsequential when you go or what you do. According to the hand of providence, it's insignificant compared to my agenda the Father has me on. Even more than that, it doesn't matter when you go because people are going to love you no matter what you do. Because you're a part of this sinful world. In John's gospel, the idea of world is not so much about how big the world is. It's about how bad it is. Humanity is thought of as humanity in opposition to God. Humanity is so bad that it would shake its fist at its creator and say, not your will, but mine be done. Jesus here says that his brothers will receive no hatred from the world. They'll receive no pushback from God's enemies because they can't be differentiated from them. They are part of this sinful, rebellious world. By contrast, Jesus will get a very different reception. Jesus will be guaranteed to be hated by the world 
because Jesus will dare to call out this world's sin. This is Jesus acting as a great prophet, calling out the dark recesses of the human heart, exposing them to the light of God's word and being hated for it. Friend, if you think of Jesus as someone who is so kind, so meek and lowly, that no one could ever really hate him if they understood him rightly, then you are not understanding the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible, when properly understood, is actually an offense, a scandal to the human heart. That's not an accident. Jesus came to redeem sinners, but before their redeemed sinners hate the fact that someone would actually die for their sins. Jesus reveals here that part of his heavenly agenda is that he will be hated. And friends, that means if we are disciples of Jesus, we should, be, we should expect the same sort of hatred toward us if we're following the same agenda as Jesus. <clears throat> Friend, are you ready for the fact that you might one day have to pay a high cost for your faith? Oh, well, maybe it'll just be a family member that gets upset with you. Maybe it'll be a promotion you won't get at work. Maybe it'll be some sort of legal trouble that you might get yourself into because you care more about God's agenda on this world than about being liked. Students, this is one of the things you need to come to terms with now. If you go off to college and start your life expecting everyone to love you, then you're going to find it really hard to continue following Jesus. At some point or another, when someone actually understands the claims of Christ, they will find what he says offensive. And if we identify with him, we'll find ourselves hated just as he is, no matter how kindly and graciously we try to live in this world. We should be ready for the fact that we will be rejected like Jesus. As Christians, that's okay. It's okay if someone doesn't like you because you're a Christian. That's okay. That doesn't give us license to live cruelly or to say things without wisdom. It doesn't give us license to not pray for people or not to truly love them. And yet our expectation should be that in this world we will have trouble. But the good news is our Savior has overcome this world. We also need to learn from this view of providence that Jesus has to, to be humble about the timing that Jesus uses in this world. I mean, consider the fact. Jesus' own brothers were clearly, uh, had a misconception about the timing of how Jesus would reveal himself. Those closest to him didn't get it whatsoever. And not only that, later on, his disciples, they too will misunderstand the timing of how Jesus is going to usher in God's forever reign of his kingdom. We ought to be very careful as believers, very, very careful to assume that we know with perfect clarity the timing Jesus will do anything. This afternoon when you're at home, if you have time, I would invite you to study that passage that I read during the congregational prayer, uh, James 4, 13 through 17. That's a text that helps us as disciples of Jesus to have the right sort of humility even as we plan and make great efforts to try and further the kingdom of God. I invite you to spend some time this afternoon meditating on it. Regardless, we as Christians are called to trust 
Jesus' perfect timing. Very often that means waiting. Very often that means moving forward in faith without certainty. And sometimes, friends, that's just very hard to do. And yet if we trust Jesus, and if we trust his timing is perfect, that God's hand of providence guided him all the way to the cross, and his hand of providence has guided us to that same cross to meet this Jesus, friends, we can trust that whatever God has for us, that it's for our good and for his glory. We have one more scene. Now the camera pans back, as it will, and we get a, a, a big-eye big view of what's happening in Judea at this party, which will serve as Jesus' unveiling. Verses 11 through 13, we see one last scene, now a simmering controversy. Jesus' brothers go up to the feast, as we've already mentioned in verse 10. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Notice there, Jesus is very careful not to go to the feast, to cause something unintentional to happen. He's not going with loud symbols or a big entourage. He, he's slipping in among the crowd, waiting for just the right time. In the weeks ahead, we'll see he will use that time just to picture perfection when he will reveal himself. Well, at this point, John tells us about what's going on in the crowds that are gathered for this who's who of religious festivals at the Feast of Booths. He does it by telling us about two different groups, the Jews or the, the religious leaders, and then the people at large. The, the Jews, we were, were told that they are looking for Jesus. In verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? Now, we're not to think of this as uh, an innocent looking for Jesus, just trying to locate him. Remember, these are people that hate him. They are looking for Jesus so they can put an end to Jesus. They're eagerly searching for an opportunity to murder the author of life. This is no surprise given the many run-ins that Jesus has had with these religious leaders. He threatens their power. He threatens through his teaching and his miracles to undermine the system they had used to insulate themselves and prop themselves up before the people. And they will do anything to defend that which they love so much. There's another group, though. And as united as the religious leaders were in their hatred of Jesus, this other group is just as divided. This group is made up of the average, everyday uh, Jews in their day just the average revelers that are there for the festival. We're told on one hand, you have those that are a little suspicious of Jesus. They say he's leading people astray. On the other hand, you have those that have a, a mild sympathy for him. They say, no, 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 he's a good man. Neither of them are so hot or so cold that they're ready to do anything about it. We're told that out of fear of the religious leaders that they kept quiet, this is a case of pressure that's building beneath the surface. No one willing to talk publicly yet because no one's quite, quite to the point where they know where they stand about this Jesus. And yet, friends, there is a day coming that what is being whispered in secret will be shouted in unison. When these people who are divided over what to think about Jesus will have one mind about what they are to do with him. When the people that right now 
will speak on their own in quiet tones about Jesus will one day shout together that he must be crucified. Because as people start to realize who Jesus is, they can't help but hate him. Friends, realize that we are watching here the building of a volcano of hatred that once it erupts will result in the sinless Son of God hanging on a cross. It's hard to imagine how the winds of popularity could turn so quickly on someone like Jesus. It was just a short time ago, probably six months ago, when he had people that were following him all around the lake just to sit under his teaching and watch him do miracles. And in just a short time, they will want to snuff his life out. Yet in God's providence, friends, let's realize that that was no accident. This was not Jesus misreading how to keep the crowds on his side. This was him following his father's timing and agenda down to the second. Romans 5, 6, which we already read in our call to worship, says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Friend, have you thought about this fact? That Jesus died at precisely the right time so that you might one day hear about him and that you might one day find new life in him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to hear it's not an accident that you are where you are at this moment. It's not an accident you've heard these words in this sermon. It's not an accident that you maybe have Christian friends that invited you. If there's a God that is in control of the universe, that guides things with his hand of providence, you are precisely where you were intended to be. And you must decide, what will you do with this Jesus? You can't remain divided about him forever. Either you'll learn to love him, to trust him as the Lord of your life and Lord of every day you have on this earth, or you will learn to hate him. There's no in-between with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you know that you are not yet a Christian, I, I urge you, figure out who this Jesus is. It's the most important question you'll ever answer in your life. For those of us who are here who are Christians, we, we ought to be those who are most patient when it comes to timing in our lives. Uh, maybe you've got a, someone in your life that you want so badly to become a Christian. So, so badly. You can just feel it down in your bones. That's a good, good desire. And yet, friends, the time when someone embraces Jesus, the time where they bow their knee before the cross, friends, it only happens at precisely the right time. That doesn't mean we're off the hook to evangelize or to pray or to plead or anything else. But it does mean that we should be patient, ever hopeful, because we know the perfect time came for us. Maybe you can remember back to that day, the day that you went from someone who wasn't sure what they thought about Jesus to someone that trusted him with their very life. That day wasn't an accident, friend. 
It happened at just the right time. Jesus works not according to our earthly way of thinking of time. He doesn't work on our schedule or our agenda. No, he works on his father's perfect timing, his perfect agenda. And he is not off by a second. In our passage, we have seen the perfect timing of the Savior. Friends, I hope you're encouraged to know that Jesus, he gets it just right. He did that 2,000 years ago, and he does it today. Maybe you've heard the conversion story of a man named Chuck Colson. He was a part of the Nixon administration, and uh, he was not what you would call a godly man. He got involved in some political wranglings. He did some very illegal things. Right around the time that his house of cards was starting to collapse, Chuck decided that he should look up a friend that he knew to be a Christian. Chuck was not a religious man at all, and yet he was in such a dire place that he thought, uh, on a whim almost, maybe this guy will have some answers for me. He went to his friend named Tom, and he said, Tom that night told me about encountering Christ in his own life. He didn't realize it, but I was in the depths of despair over Watergate, watching the president I'd helped for four years flounder in office. I'd also heard that I might become a target of the investigation as well. In short, my world was collapsing. That night, as Tom was telling me about Jesus, I listened attentively. But I didn't let on my own need. When he offered to pray, I thanked him, but I said, no, I'd like to see him sometime afterward. I'd read this C.S. Lewis, Lewis book we were, they had been talking about. But when I got in the car that night, I couldn't drive it out of the driveway. Ex-Marine captain, White House tough guy, I was crying too hard. I was calling out to God. I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus, and he came into my life. No one could have predicted when the right time for Chuck Colson would be. Yet, decades later, we look back and we see it was just the right time. Jesus, perfect in his timing and his father's agenda, true 2,000 years ago as it is today. Let's pray.